Uh, hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. How are you? Good. How are you? What you been up to? Uh, it's been a while. Yeah. What have I done? Well, we both got married. Oh, yeah. Not to each other. Thank goodness. Um, I was actually stipulated in your contract. <laughs> um, and you went to Morocco? I did. How was that? It was nice. And, um, yeah, it's been busy. It has been busy. So, but now we're back. I got a new tree. Oh, yeah. Have you ever figured out what kind of tree it is? It is an elegant Tristania, I think they're called. It's the tree in front of the library. That's all I know. The tree in front of the library. Yeah, the the library nearby. Was the tree in front of the library? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if you just get a tree from the nursery, they're so small. Whereas <laughs> if you wait until like late at night and go and take a twenty foot tree from someone else, it gives you a jump start. Yeah, that's the way to go. It is. Um Fortunately the root balls are much larger than you expect, so it's just like sitting on top of the concrete right now. Just, on its you, side. You need one of those digger machines with the know, the points. Oh yeah, but I didn't plan that part yeah. too well. Those are pretty cool. Um, and let's see, has anything happened in the industry? Actually, I think it's, I, I can't think of anything crazy. Um, what has happened? Ion got bought. Yeah. And, uh, by black magic and black magic made it free or nine ninety five or, you know, effectively free. free. I think they have a, a paid version, but. Oh yeah. But not for people. Right. It's an order of magnitude cheaper. Or yes. maybe infinite orders of magnitude cheaper than it was. Yes. Does that work? I think that works with orders of magnitude still. I don't know how that works. Um, but, oh, and the, the Sony's got a new camera out, the X70, which has generated a lot of buzz um, because it's shooting long up 422 10-bit. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's been interesting. So people seem pretty excited about that. Um, mostly... Obviously, no one's excited about the long op part, aside from the fact that it makes it reasonable to record 10-bit and 422 on you know memory cards. So, yeah, um, that's an exciting change. The the software support isn't quite there yet, um, but I yeah, Colin, why is the software support not there? Well, okay, so get on that. Apple, um, they have two different families of H.264 codecs in OS 10. They have the one that is used when you watch a video in QuickTime Player or in your browser um, or when you're working with things like AVC HD Media. And then they have a different one that's used for formats like AVC Intra and um, some of the XAVC. XAVC is a whole different rant. That's a weird format. Um, quote, quote scare, square quote, scare quote format. Um so they have two different codecs, one for normal H.264, like long gop, um, 8-bit, uh, 420, and then one for AVC Intra, which is, as the name suggests, Intra Frame and 422 10-bit, potentially. It doesn't have to be. Um, neither well, of those... That makes sense because they're different formats. Right, yeah. Um, neither of them can handle 10-bit 422 long gop because the long gop stuff is in the one H.264 decoder, and the 10-bit stuff is in the other. And so hopefully we Apple... We need will be... a third codec. Right, yeah. Um, hopefully Apple will be resolving that. Um, unfortunately, no one else can resolve that because creating AV Foundation codecs is not an open process. Well. Fine, I guess, but... <laughs> um, we can all just switch to GStreamer, can't we? Uh, we could. I mean, that's the fallback for, you know, if you want to support this stuff and you aren't licensing a fancy H.264 codec is you use an open source thing and transcode it. But Do they support it? Um, I imagine FFmpeg can do this. I haven't mm-hmm. tried. Yeah, the only problem is their GPL. Right, right. There's licensing issues around their H.264 implementation. I feel which, like I'm saying H- Luckily... You are saying H, which is weird. I'm not trying to. Is that a German thing? Is this another one of your affectations? It's a British thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
That seems like you. Uh, Zed as well. I say Zed a lot. Uh. X Zed. Um, so yeah, that's a new format that hopefully will be supported soon. And um, other than that, I think it's been pretty quiet, uh, as it tends to be this time of year. Although I will note that the number of sales calls we're getting about NAB has been picking up, um, telling us that NAB is indeed coming up in the not-too-distant future. It's time to get a booth designed. Yeah. We're making it out of wood this year, right? Are we? Oh, we should do it. Yeah, we need to compete with um, with uh, Autodesk. They always beat us at booth design. Um, and that doesn't seem right. It feels like we should be able to beat them. They, I think Given, you know, expenditures and everything. Yeah, I feel like it's mostly that they have a little more space to work with. I don't think it's that the quality oh, is less. Yeah. It's just the, I think so? Yeah. I think if we had that much space, ours would be as good. We reuse ours a lot, too. Yeah. They get to do a new one every year because they do more than one trade show. Yeah. What are we going to do? We should do something cool. I'm serious. It should be all, um, it should all be like... Uh, Article board? No, no, no. Hardwood with like tongue and groove. That seems like a good use of my time. <laughs> um, I would be, yeah, I fully support that. It'd be beautiful. We could just spend the whole setup time lacquering. Or just, we could, oh, see, the advantage of this is we don't have to bring anything other than, like, a router table. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Just take a router, carry on on the plane, and then when we get there, fell a tree. There are still trees in Las Vegas, right? There there were never trees in Las Vegas. Oh, come on. Can we make one out of sand? Ooh, glass. Yeah. We'll we'll just bring a high-powered laser... No, you can melt it with the sun if you got enough mirrors. Remember that 3D printer for sand? Well, um, the uh, the solar power plant near Las Vegas is not operating at full capacity, so maybe we can borrow that. Mm. I hear it melts birds. Yeah, it's turned out to be cloudier there than they expected as well. So It's depressing. Yeah. Luckily, we'll always have gas. Yeah, it turns out. Um, so, topics. Global warming. No, wait. Different podcast. Um, what are we talking about? So, what I wanted to talk about this week um, is pricing of applications and commercial viability. Uh, there's been a conversation happening on other podcasts uh, and in the Twitter sphere recently about this idea of creating an app dedicated to podcasting because it turns out uh, lots of people do podcasts and lots of people who are vocal on twitter do podcasts people in the software development space and we all use these sort of kludged together solutions so we are recording right now via skype using a tool called call recorder Um, then things get edited in adobe audition Um, A lot of podcasts actually do what's called a double ender where both of us would record and then we would sync them up later. We don't do that because we're not professionals. Um, And then there's all kinds of audio processing and then there's the whole sort of distribution side. So writing show notes, hosting RSS feeds, hosting files, um, dealing with integration into iTunes. So there's a lot of moving parts involved in posting or, you know, recording and posting a podcast. Right. And it's the sort of thing that has a, you know, that, you can see how you could do a unified app that would do a really good job of this because it would be designed specifically for the things podcasters need. Right. It'd be their blogger. Yeah. Yeah. So it would, you know, do the call stuff. It would support multiple parties. It would, you know, automate the process for doing double enders so that, you know, it could deal with network issues. Um, You know, you can see how you could pull all these pieces together into one nice user interface. Right. Why hasn't anyone done that? Um, Because it's hard work, I imagine. Well, I mean, it it is hard work. Like, we can definitely agree on that. But lots of things are hard work, and they still get done. I think the bigger issue is the payoff. And, you know, when you... It's relatively easy to get a good sense of how big the podcast market is because we can look at how many podcasts are on iTunes and we can do some basic math on like how many of them have 
subscriptions and how many different hosts are involved and we can sort of see how often they're recording and uh, from there you can start to make informed guesses about how many you know likely purchasers there are of an application and you can work backwards from that to sort of figure out well if it's going to take you know two people years or whatever uh, what do we need to charge for it uh, and you end up with a really big number right well okay so yeah i mean i so this was basically this all started because someone did a blog post where they basically bemoaned the fact that they want to write an app that they can't write um for financial reasons they can't write it and i i don't really agree with the whole premise I don't know. How what's your feeling on this? I mean, so there has been a lot of follow up. Um, lots of people have said like um it, you know, it could be viable or your problem is you're you know, you need to charge less and make it up in volume and you know, lots of people have argued lots of different things here. Um it seems to me that You could make something like this work financially. I mean, one, the, the argument behind it is that podcasts are too hard to make, right? Yeah. Which is probably, if you really believe that, then you believe that that is the limiting factor for the number of podcasts in existence. Well, I think I'm, I'm going to stop you there because I think there's two different difficult uh two different difficulties involved. And I think this deals with the one of them, but I, I think the bigger issue is, um, and I think this is part of where the conversation came from is the issue of the recording hardware and all of the other costs involved. Um, so what ends up happening is that the people who want the tool are the people who are sort of already up to the point of needing the tool. Spending a lot of money already. Yeah. But I mean, so here's the thing, like you I'm not sure that the market's as small as they think because they're counting well that or I I mean there's one there's one of two things like they're not estimating how much people would be willing to pay for a tool like this like they're lowballing their figure or they're lowballing their market size um, and that's easy to do because you know we all go into these things now informed by the Mac App Store. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people think that apps have to be cheap for people to buy them. And they're also used to being sort of ham-handed with ways to deal with price elasticity. I mean, some of that's changing now with the in-app purchases thing. But, you know... I think a lot of people's worry is that most people will not be pro enough to spend a lot of money. And the few people who are pro enough, there aren't enough of them to charge them enough money. Yeah. But that to me, so like, I don't know a lot about this market, but it seems to me like the people who are pro enough to pay a lot of money have a lot of guests. And if the whole point of this, you know, the way this was pitched was as a double ender app, Mm-hmm. just charge for the app like make them pay for each one of their guests yeah I think that's you know it's 40 bucks Yeah. so every single episode they end up spending 40 bucks to give you know random twitter be famous guy a copy and yes eventually you know every famous think pundit will have a copy floating around but or, you know, you make it subscription-based, or you make it, you know... Yeah, I, I, I wonder. I mean, you price know, the, tier. the estimate I think I heard from, from Marco based on um, the database he uses for his Overcast podcasting application is that his best estimate is that there are about um, 10,000 people worldwide who routinely create podcasts. Sure. And, you know you have to work from there to figure out of those, how many of them are, you know, because there's a lot of this American life, you know, people who have existing workflows. And then there's this whole set of podcasts that are people recording things in person. 
um, with a Zoom, you know, handheld recorder or something. So you, you know, or, or churches recording sermons. So you have to, you know, assume that less than that number of people are the potential audience, and then you have to look at what your, you know, likely penetration within that potential audience is. Um, and I think you're, you know, being pretty optimistic if you think you're going to get more than, you know, ten or twenty percent. Yeah, no, you get five. Which so that's you know best guess between 500 and 1,000 people. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, like, maybe that's true. Um, but we would buy it. You know, we, there's no way we can be one of 500 most, like, mid-tier professional podcasts. We're, we're nobody's. Yeah. No one even listens to our podcast, and I drop 200 bucks in an instant. Yeah. I. I mean, I think... I mean, has anyone on Overcast ever subscribed to our podcast? I doubt it. Um, I don't know. I, could, I think I could look. Uh, yeah, I mean, that just seems... It doesn't seem like... I mean, and granted, yes. If you, in, if you are a person on a podcast, you probably think the podcast market is larger than it is. Um, but I don't know. I mean... But I mean, you know, so say you were going to charge $200 for this. What do you think? How many copies do you think you have to sell? You know, 5,000? Yeah. Over the life of the app? Yeah. That would make it worth starting. Yeah. If you're a one or two, you know, if you're a one person shop, you can throw some money at stuff and throw some time at stuff. But, you know, I mean, that's the other thing is like, okay, so this was two guys who are worried about breaking even, like they're not going to be the kind of person to ship an app like this. It's a speculative market. Yeah. That's the great thing about capitalism is there are a bunch of dumb people out there who will waste their time. Yeah. I think the other, the other hard part of this app is because it has to do so many sort of just discrete things. It's relatively hard for one person to do it well, I think in any reasonable amount of time. So I think that's probably a, a pretty big barrier as well. Like, you know, the skill set involved with doing audio editing is not the same skill set as network audio communication like Skype and, you know, some of the other things. Yeah, but I mean, there, you know, you could bite off a smaller yeah, minimum viable product. I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't use Skype. The reason why people don't like Skype is because the call quality always sucks. But if you're doing a double end, like if you make double enders easy, then you don't have to do good VoIP. Sure. Um, so I don't know. And especially if you do some sort of like gated, like if you're smart enough to do some sort of, you know, noise gated double ender where it like cuts itself together or use NTP to sync up the stuff. Like it could be pretty easy. Yeah. And maybe that's the minimal viable app is an app that, uh, you know, has some way for auto discovery of the other people on your call. Um, synchronizes the recording from a master, times it, and then auto-transfers the files back and, you know, throws them into an audition project or something synced up. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. That might be it. I mean, you know, a lot of this is done already by Apple, too. Like, it's not like... I mean, can you still do um, calls over iChat? Yeah. You could with the theatrical whatever. I'm not. I think you probably still can. Um, at one point, they had the GarageBand integration. I don't know if they still do. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, <sighs> but that's a Mac. You know, that requires all of your um, guests to be on a Mac. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me like this is going to be the thing. This is going to be the the bitch session that, like, the internet spends a lot of time complaining about a lot of things, but this is going to be one of the things that resonates with us a lot in the next couple of years. Like, we don't realistically live in a world now where you compete on viable business models. You know what I mean? Like, this app is going to get made. Just the the sheer amount of like Twitter wank fest thought pieces on this in the last week 
means there's like 17 college kids writing this app right now. Sure. And they're all going to get released. Or, you know, half of them will get released. And most of them are going to make no money. But that doesn't matter. I mean, like, even if you think, like, if I was like, you know what? These guys are all morons. It's totally possible to make money in this. I wouldn't start this app right now. Because everyone's starting this app right now. And, you know, there's, like, you don't... You know, this is the... This is the nut of disruption that people don't like to talk about. Is like you get disrupted by morons and people <laughs> who aren't making money. Like to be successfully disrupted, the other guy doesn't have to win. You can both lose. Right. And you know, twelve people can lose. Like there's no high end of this. Or like six guys in India can all lose. Right. Like Well and that's I mean, that's the disruption that we that that not we directly, although it's true also, but, you know, as an industry see from players like Apple and Blackmagic who have completely different uh, business models. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, we see that. Yeah. Like, we compete against free products. We compete against heavily subsidized products. We compete against a bunch of people who take open source and don't pay the, you know, licensing fees and royalties and sell apps that take very little time to make. Yeah. You know, I don't, and I don't know what the solution is to all of that. I think, yeah, it, you know, pretty much all you can do is keep working and, uh, you know, have your fallback plan, I guess. Well, I mean, you do what the what these guys did. You look at the market and you go, nah, pass. Yep. Um, and unfortunately, people are going to pass on a lot of stuff that probably could work and a lot of people are going to jump in feet first on a lot of things that aren't going to work yeah um and there's not you know i don't know how you figured that out you know capitalism works in the aggregate not in the specific right i mean i guess the flip side is some of these products like this podcasting app um may not make sense as a standalone product at a standalone company but that may be the only place that an app like that gets created. Um, you know, you can sort of see a path where you create this app and it ends up at an Adobe or similar. Yeah. Um, but it would yeah, I mean, probably if you're never the be kind of person there. who's willing to jump into it, like you make this as a cloud thing and you end up as a, you know, Yahoo product that gets ignored. Right. Yeah, I mean, so do we want to pivot to talking a little bit about Scopebox? Sure. You know, this is something we've been thinking about as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, and part of this is pricing and how you deal with that. And part of it is, you know, one, you know, one of the big problems of sort of a shop of our size is that you can't really afford to not have uh, an anchor piece, you know, an app that basically brings in all the money um, because you can't make it up in volume, you know, in like product volume um, because there's not enough development time for that or support time. And you can't really... I don't know. It's, um, you know, this is something we're trying to figure out right now as a company with four apps now. Like, what's what do we do next? Um, I mean, our challenge is often, you know, we don't have the bandwidth to add additional applications because we, even though we have ideas for things we'd like to build, um, and we have applications that we'd like to be spending more time on but we need to look at the cost benefit um and it's sometimes even an issue with you know feature requests from users uh sometimes users request features that we think are really great ideas and that we would love to do but we have to be honest with ourselves and say you know really the only person who's going to use that is this one person um and well it's not even that it's like we are at capacity right now for development. You know, we're probably over capacity because we don't spend enough time on the things that aren't development. You know, the reason why we're able to maintain 
development on this many apps is because we're ignoring some other portions of the company, like, you know, marketing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe that's the kind of thing that can solve itself. You market more and you hire more people from the crazy amounts of money that AdWords brings in. <laughs> or doesn't. Um, but I don't know. Um, you know, so what happened was we... The company started with a single app, Scopebox, and it was an expensive product. And each user brought in a, you know, and I was, it was, you know, basically just me at that point. And so individual users, you know, basically bankrolled me for a week. Um, So it was, you know, it was sort of a tenable situation where, you know, there weren't that many sales, but the sales supported the development and, there didn't need to be much marketing because individual sales supported a fair amount of development. Um, And it worked for a while. Um, But, you know, we were talking about people coming in disrupting industries. It's no longer possible to sell a $700 set of scopes on software, it seems. Um, And so... You know, we're now $100, which means we need to sell 10 times as much to support the same amount of development, or sorry, seven times as much to support the same amount of development, um, which we just about do. You know, I would say we, we make more money now. We're finally at this point to the point where we make more money selling a $100 version of Scopebox than we did selling a $700 version of Scopebox. Um, but it's still not the sales volume that would support, you know, both of us devoting time to the app. Right. Um, and in comparison to our other apps, um, it's not enough to prioritize it as an app. Right. So I don't know. Um, I don't know where you want to steer this conversation. I mean, that, and that sort of, you know, there are different ways to change that situation that we've talked about. Um, we can obviously try and figure out if there are ways to raise our sales volume. Um, and that's obviously a good conversation to have in general, um, just as a for-profit business. Um, and that's tough because there's a lot of sort of catch-22 or chicken-egg or something uh, situations when it comes to sales um especially of of pro products because of the way people buy those and and the places they're used it can be um hard for small companies to sort of get that ball rolling um as compared to companies that have a scaled up sales and marketing department um well it's not i mean it's worse than that the fact is like we can think of 20 ways to increase scope box sales that we think will work Right? I mean, you know, off the top of my head, I could probably come up with that many. Um, All of them have a sunk cost to them. Yeah. So you can't do all 20. You can't really do any of them without spending time and or money. And you have the same opportunities for all of your other apps and for new apps. And so when you get to a point where you no longer have any, like, you know, the, the app was written because my time was very cheap. Right. <laughs> Essentially. Like, you know, I took six, eight months to get to the first version I showed anyone. Mm-hmm. And it was all like sitting in my house working 20 hours a day, 18 hours a day, um, living off savings. You know, and I think I did, you know, that year I made $20,000 on the app. And that was fine because that's all I spent. Right. (laughs) You know, and like that was great. Um, And that's why disruption tends to come from college campuses. Um, It's not exactly what my fair market rate would be. Right. I think it'd be hard for you to make that shift right now. 
Well, right. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to take a pay cut and work for 20 grand adding stuff to scope box. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, it's hard to decide what to do with that. I mean, so you you find more customers somehow, which, you know, isn't a obvious thing, or you raise the price again, which is something we're discussing doing. Um, or, I don't know, what's the... What's the third option? Those are pretty much it, or you take funding. Yeah. That's all, yeah. That doesn't... That's a strange option. Well, because that's going to come with it, the implication that you need to grow much bigger. Right. Um, Yeah. And it's hard to see how a software company really does that nowadays. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, services grow. Software, I don't hear a lot of software companies being funded right now. Yeah. I mean, certainly we could get loans and things, but that's a... That's different. I'm willing to blow someone else's money on payroll. I mean, we have money, like we have savings in the company, but that doesn't mean, like the reason why we're not spending it on development on Scopebox is because... Right, I mean, it would have to be a order of magnitude. It would be, you know, spend a couple million dollars to add a bunch of developers and hire a sales team, you know? Yeah. Like, I think that's the kind of investment it would take to generate a <clears throat> meaningful return. Yeah. Um, and that's never been our growth strategy, even if we wanted to pursue that. Yeah. I mean, so there's, you know, there's a lot of um, praise for the bootstrap method. And I think what we're finding, you know, bootstrapping you know, I would say that Divergent Media is an incredibly successful example of bootstrapping a company. Yeah. Um, the problem with bootstrapping is it always gets you to the local maxima. Like, it's the standard, like, mountain climbing problem. You get to the top of the nearest mountain. You don't get to the tallest mountain. Because, you know, when you're bootstrapping, you can always only go up. <laughs> right. And once you get to the highest point that was near you when you started you're stuck like you there's no way to get to the next higher mountain on the other side of the valley quite literally on the other side of the valley sometimes yeah (laughs) um i mean i think i think that's yeah are you thinking what i'm thinking i I know i know you are it's google plus integration (laughs) um i think you know, some of that comes back to deciding on the goals you have for the company. Um, and I think I have a pretty good sense of what your goals for the company are, even if they're not articulated in our uh, our internal mission statement. Um, oh, yes, they are. I don't know. Okay. Our mission statement is be evil. <laughs> um, no? You haven't gotten that memo? I think, I think uh, yeah. It's a little more nuanced, but okay, that's Fine. the gist. No, I mean, I think the the, the mission statement of the company is um, don't work for anyone else and <laughs> make software you like. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you know, I mean that like put out something you can be proud of and uh, don't let anything impede that. Right, but I mean, your goal for the company has never been to become, you know, to have a buyout or to have a yacht. Yeah, yeah. and so you haven't structured the company in that way and you haven't tried to grow that company in that way right you know from day one you could have taken a very different attitude and ended up selling out to apple at various times or you know moving to adobe or something yeah no i mean we before we shipped the app someone wanted two people tried to buy it we could have skipped all this (laughs) yeah Uh, granted now okay one of them was one of them was hair no not um sorry one of them was uh, the, guy, the guys who make the, the really bad software scopes. Oh. Video, video tech? No. The guys who, no, the guys who make the software ones. They're not, sorry, they're not software. They're hardware, but they're in a little box and you plug in a monitor. Oh, I mean, Leader they're, makes some of those. Uh, no. Leech. No, no, no. The, 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 like, uh, is it Harris? 
No. I mean, there's a bunch of companies that aren't around. Ferris is big. It was littler than that. Yeah. I mean, Videotech and Tektronics. Videotech's not around anymore. Um, Videotech's not around anymore? No, they got bought by Tech. Oh. Huh. I mean, that, yeah. There's a lot of players from the early days of Scopebox who aren't around anymore. Yeah, somebody tried to, they were like, what we want you to do is to write a version of our scopes for Mac. And I said, I did that. It's on Scopebox. And they said, no, no, no. We want you to write one for us. And I said, well, do you want to buy the company? And they said, well, I don't know about that. I said, well, you want to buy my only product? Said, yeah, no, we don't want to buy the product. We want you to make our product for Mac. And it's like, okay, so you want to put your logo on this? And they were like, no, yeah, kind of. So you want to buy it? Well, no, we'll, you can keep your product. Um, okay. But yeah, that certainly, there would have been opportunities. Yeah. And it's also, I've, I've been doing this, um, you know, looking into some of this stuff for my graduate program. And one of the other things that I sort of hadn't been thinking through as clearly is how many people in this space sell software as a hobby or as an, a secondary stream of income and have no expectation or intention of it becoming a full-time revenue source. Right. Um, and they aren't making the moves necessary to sort of grow it from a part-time gig into a full-time gig. You know, you know the, the attitude is sort of, um, it'd be great if that happened, but it's not realistic and I'm not going to put energy into it. Right. And I mean, I think a lot of it is like you, there's a couple tiers to software development as a career path. Um, and if you want to be like the, like the most lucrative, you know, unless you want to like become like a, you know, VP track manager type at one of these big Silicon Valley companies, or you want to be like a CTO for a financial services company, like, if you want to write code for a living, the most lucrative way to do it is probably to be a a contractor, to be a mercenary, essentially. Sure. You know, you can make, you know, multiple hundreds of dollars an hour doing that. Um, and the best, you know, if that's the track you want to be on, you have to be fairly public, um, with your abilities, and one of the fastest ways to do that is to have products sure. that you can show. Open source or commercial. Yeah, either either you're like a major contributor to an open source product, or you're, you know, or you have a portfolio of apps that you actively maintain. You know, either one or more. Yeah. And so, yeah, for a lot of people, you know, it pays dividends in that respect. Like you, you build the app, you make a hundred bucks a month from the app store and, you know, people call you constantly for work. Which if you're cool with that is a pretty good approach. Right. But this is why like thinking that everyone's competing on the same field at this point, right. making apps is, you know, it's just not the case anymore. Right. You know, because everyone needs different things out of their app. Like, you know, there's someone who can make this podcasting app and be perfectly happy with it and continue to maintain it, you know, without bringing in, you know, the quarter of a million a year that these other guys wanted. Right. Do you think that a company like um, Omni Group or Panic could be started today? I don't know. Um, that's not something I thought about. I mean, these are both companies. You posed that, it like a question. You posed it like it couldn't be. I I wonder. I mean, because what I, do you think the difficulty of it would be? I think it's getting over that sort of scaling hurdle. You know, they both. You know, Omni's much older, obviously, um, but they're both companies that predate sort of the mainstream internet. I mean, Panic's first application was Transmit, an FTP, FTP client. But um, right. they both you know, predate the, the first big bubble. Um, so it seems to me Omni, their real path to viability was they picked a small niche, which was Next, 
they made just one app, right? It was just OmniWeb? I think so. And I think the thing that really got the company to a point where it could make money, like where it could be sustainable, was when Apple bought a bunch of IP from them. Okay. So they. Because Apple, Apple bought like their PDF renderer stuff for OSX. Okay. I didn't they know that history. All, they licensed all that. Um, and I, I imagine that was not a small purchase. Sure. You know, it's small for Apple, but I bet it was not small for the Omni guys. Probably wasn't that small for Apple back then either. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, you know, things like that can still happen. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know enough about the company to know if they would be where they are now without that. I mean, certainly, had they just continued to develop OmniWeb, they would not be anywhere. Right. So, I don't know. Um, you know, on the other hand, Panic. You know, they they were, what, Audion for years? Yep. That was their big app. And then Apple didn't buy them and bought the other guys instead. Yep. Um, but did they make money off Audion? I guess they did. They charge for that, right? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, how do you do? One gets a sense from the way they, they structure things that Transmit brings in the bulk of their revenue. Yeah, that or Coda at this point. Maybe. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But they certainly don't charge a lot for Transmit. Like, I haven't... I use Transmit, and I haven't given them money in a couple of years. I yeah, feel. I mean, they've done, they're on version 4 now, I think, over the last... 10, 12, 16 years. Right. Um, so every... Did they charge for four? I don't yeah. remember. Yeah. Okay. So every four years, you're giving them $50, say. Yeah. Something huh. like that. Um, you know, and it has the advantage that it's a fairly... You know, they're the market leader in a fairly broad category. Yeah. Like, a lot of people have FTP clients. They're also competing against, you know, a lot of free clients and other things. I feel like any, you know, there's a, you know, they at least have 5% of that market. Sure. Probably a lot more. Well, it'd be interesting. You know, it would be awesome to know more details about these companies. Yeah. Um, You should pitch your thing. Yeah, I know. What do you mean here? Yeah. (laughs) I thought you meant just in general. Yeah, in general, like now. So if anyone who is listening at this point, um, full stop. No, if anyone's listening um, and happens to, you know, run a software company, I'm working as part of a graduate degree on a project that's looking at um, how small software companies decide on their sales and marketing strategies. And it's really aimed at trying to get small companies sharing information with each other. And so the idea is to have some way of sharing somewhat um, obfuscated or, or um, you know, non-specific data with each other, so that we can get a general sense of, for example, how big is the market for video applications on the Mac um, in you know the post-production space or something like that, um, and to get a sense of what's working and what isn't. So, are there some companies that are selling thousands of copies a day? Uh, or hundreds of copies a day, even compared to a lot of companies that are selling, you know, tens of copies a day. Um, and what factors can we point to that drive those different volumes, you know, pricing, marketing, um, support, etc. So um, you can take a look at data4devs.com. That's the word for F-O-R, um, to take a look at what I'm thinking about and get in touch if you're interested in uh, participating in the project cool so i mean it's just and one it's of not those just things. for video no no it's it's really just anyone who's doing software development um i would think probably more likely mac FTP. software development because of the size of the community and the um ways in which the community interacts but really it's just the issue that you and i have discussed for ages which is it's really hard to know if we're doing well in our market or bad in our market which makes it really hard to make decisions about uh 
whether we should be spending more on sales and marketing or whether we should be taking a different pricing strategy because we have no idea what saturation is and how close we are to saturation. Yeah. And I think that's got to be true for most people in this space. Yeah. I think that's true. So that's the idea. Mm. Got any chatter? I do. Um, I'm going to build a machine for doing fast Fourier transforms. Okay. I'm a right, no, I guess machine. not fast Fourier, just Fourier transforms. Well, it's I mean, pretty slow. What, what's the upper bound on how fast it can go, though? Uh, I guess you could hook it up to like a motor. Yeah, I mean, material science, right? So. Yeah. No, but this is, oh my God, it's really cool. It's a, it's a, so I just recently read the book um, Innovators by that guy. Uh, uh, Isaacson. Yeah, Walter Isaacson. And it's basically like him reusing a bunch of his other books um, to go through the history of computing. So everything from Ada Lovelace forward um, and the Babbage engine and all that stuff. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of the period of computing where things were mechanical, which, you know, is a, as, a, as a sort of wannabe maker, I find really interesting. Like... You know, there are not a lot of things that I want to own, but the idea of like so much of what I spent my entire life doing is so intangible that like the idea of having like a little thing on my desk that can do computing Mm -hmm. where it's not like, oh, you hit the buttons and it goes into an Arduino and it does the thing, but like a thing where it's like, look, the stuff is all made out of things and it moves and it does, you know, like it's built into the object itself. This calculation um, is really sort of intriguing to me. And so, but, you know, they've mostly been things like computing integrals or other like sort of nebulous math things. Um, But this was, and I've got a link here to a YouTube video, a couple of them actually, is I found this the other day. It's a computer that does um, Fourier analysis of signals. So it can compose and decompose a frequency into sine waves. It's super cool. And what, what what I find so fascinating about this is it actually... I'm a visual thinker, and so Fourier analysis has always been somewhat nebulous to me. Like, I use it, but it's basically like an opaque library that I don't think about too much. Sure. Um, But, like, seeing how this machine does the calculation is really enlightening for what the calculation actually is. Cool. And now I want one. So, if you haven't bought me anything for Christmas. I think there are ten of them in the world, so... Well, you know, hopefully they have Try to lowball one of them. I'll give you $75. Yeah. Hopefully they're no better at pricing than us. Yeah, you include the freight. Um, I think, I mean, it it sort of speaks to why shows like um, how it's made are so compelling for a lot of people in our industry. The idea of sort of a physical factory and all of the Mm -hmm. different steps that it goes through in an automated way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I had a Google Christmas party I went to a couple years ago at the Computer Science Museum. And I thought for sure if anyone could get them to use their Babbage engine. Because they have a Babbage engine recreation. And it always just sits there. No one ever cranks it. I thought for sure they'd crank it for us, but they didn't. Well, that's too bad. I know, right? I'm surprised um, Google hasn't caught their own yet. Like in the lobby. Like a quantum one? Yeah. Babbage engine might be just as fast. Yeah. Zing. Come on. I thought they thought it worked. Well, but they keep doing experiments where it's no faster than normal compute. Oh, that's all weird. Um, so, I don't know. Um, Anyways, what's your chatter called? My chatter, I, this isn't very good chatter, but 
and maybe I should just save it for another episode, but I'm going to talk anyways, which is this article on um, Swift performance. A guy broke down, did a bunch of benchmarking of basically the same code running in Swift and running in Objective-C um, and taking a few different approaches to running it in Swift and in every case found that Swift was slower than Objective-C and in many cases order in order of magnitude slower or more. Yeah. What did you think about this? I, uh, it got me thinking, the reason I wanted to add it is it got me thinking about just how little I hear about Swift. Mm, yeah. Um, and it makes me wonder if, if it's got any legs, if it's still, you know, or if, if it's going to need a reboot from Apple at WWDC to get any actual momentum going. I bet people are using it, aren't they? I, I, I still hear people talk about it now and then. Have you heard of anyone who's shipped an app built on it? Are you gonna, Are you allowed to do that now? I guess yeah. iOS 8, now you can. And Yosemite. Uh, yeah, that's true. But I don't know if anyone has. We should. I just, you know, even just in terms of, yeah, the Twitter chatter and everything, it doesn't... I don't get the sense that there are a lot of people working on it routinely. Yeah. Um... And so I wonder how Apple's going to handle that at WWDC and just in general going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think they're somewhat reserved about pushing it right now because it is a work in progress. Mm-hmm. You know, but this whole, I don't know, reading this post, the guy seemed to go into it hating Swift already. And he didn't find a lot of performance problems. He found one performance problem, which is there's a cost to making objects. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, which can and probably will be pretty quickly resolved once they decide it's a priority. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like the entire thing is you like super in it is what takes time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Well, anyways, I thought it was interesting enough to bring up just to get yeah. people thinking about where Swift is at and where it's going. So, Let's do Swift. I would have to learn how to write software first. Cause Did you see someone made playgrounds for Objective-C? No. Yeah, that takes a lot of the fun out of Swift. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It sounds kind of hacky, but... Yeah, like LLVM and stuff. It does. Yeah, it makes sense. It's Swift. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Anyways. Well, we'll see you um, sometime. I'll see you Monday. Sunday. Well, yeah, I will see you Sunday, but um, on the I'll podcast, I meant. The listeners. Yeah. I'll see the listeners sometime.